to another episode of the 10 Frame Podcast for Emerging Artists. My name is Kelly Thompson, and you can find me at kellythompsonart.com or on Instagram at kellyktompsonart. I'm Kevin Kirkwood, and you can find me at kevinwillpaint.com or my Instagram handle is kevinwillpaint. I'd like to announce that Kevin and I will be having a two-person show on May the 26th. That's a Friday at the Southern Motors building on Broughton Street in downtown Savannah. That's 402 Broughton Street next to Blix Art Supplies. And it's going to run from Friday, May the 26th through the middle of June. And we hope to see you all there. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the podcast. We have the privilege to sit down and speak with Samantha Mack. She is a Savannah-based multidisciplinary artist working in fibers, painting, and she also works at Sulphur Studios. Please welcome Samantha Mack. Um, so my Instagram is Samantha D. Mack, M-A-C-K, and my website is SamanthaMackArt.com. And you can also find me here at Sulphur Studios in Savannah. Awesome. Well, Samantha, thank you for letting us sit in your studio. I, I love being able to talk to you and see your work at the same time. And because I'm looking at a wall, many walls of jars, can you talk about that body of work and what they look like, what your process was? And just let's dive into that one. Yeah, um, so I like to think of my studio as kind of a laboratory, so it's kind of packed, jammed full right now with experiments, um, some recent work from my thesis exhibition and some work in progress. So the jars are from my thesis exhibition, which was called Through a Kaleidoscope, um, which was very much about time and cycles and accumulation, um, repetition. Um, so this series was, we're sitting with 300 of the thousand butterflies that were in that series, um, and each one of them is different. Uh, they're each two colors, so there are some combinations of colors that are the same, but no two butterflies are alike. Um, and then I created a classification system for them um, using the actual system, the binomial nomenclature, um, but it's totally fictional. And then for the exhibition, each one of those butterflies had a light in it. So there was sort of a ceremonial moment the evening before the show opened, uh, where I got together with a group of people and we lit the butterflies. And then over the course of the show, they died. Um, so my work is also very much about that mortality and sort of perpetually reckoning with that. What was the light that you used? Um, it was like a little orb LED light. Okay. Um, and kind of just pull a tab and then it's lit and you can't really turn it off it just eventually dies and they would all die at different rates um, so that kind of changed the effect of the show over time because the gallery was dark um, and one like surprise that I was really happy about was uh, the colors of the yarn would be reflected pretty strongly in each one of these uh, cubes of this grid shelf so as the lights would die at different rates the colors of the show would change too. Can you describe the butterflies, your process in making them, what they're made out of, size, what, you know, what they look like, so people listening can, can kind of get a uh, visual? Yeah, um, so they're all crocheted, which is my primary medium right now. I do a little bit of everything, um, fibers, painting, film, um, but crochet is my primary medium uh, because to me it has very much to do with cyclical time and repetition. And the butterflies are about two and a half 
by two inches wide in these little uh, mason glass mason preservation jars, um, which was also an element of it that the jars are just big enough that the butterflies are kind of suspended in them. And, you know, very much thinking about that idea of preservation of trying to capture that moment of when we had the ceremonial lighting of the butterflies that's kind of encapsulated in the jars. I remember, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, coming into your show, it's dark in the room, everyone has 3D glasses on, and you have these little lit fiber sculptures in jars. It was kind of surreal and super interesting. Talk about the decision, the way you lit the space, and the reason for, you know, having the lights off and how that process worked. Thank you, yeah. Um, So I had made these special exhibition postcards with uh, what's called diffraction film in the center so that when you'd hold them up to anything with light you'd see rainbows coming out. Um, So that was in keeping with my idea of uh, through a kaleidoscope life being a process of perpetual reorientation. Um, So as you would turn that postcard and look through it you would never see the same the exhibition in the same way and with the lights changing constantly everyone's going to be getting a different view of the exhibition. And what was your other feeling? It was the lighting. How did you envision it from the beginning? Lights off, glasses on, different visual experience. Yeah, so I wanted, I'm interested in combining the crochet, which is this very traditional medium, with the light, which is more contemporary. And there's something, like initially I was thinking of the light as this spiritual element, but the crochet is also itself very spiritual. Um, because it's this meditative process. And so I wanted the space to be something very um, relaxing and comforting and a place where people could rest. So I had crocheted these big cushions um, that were stuffed with memory foam so people could just sit and um, enjoy the low lighting and watch some of the film pieces that I had included in the show. So my work is also very much about labor and rest. And yeah, from the, from pretty early on in the planning of the like the final steps of ramping up to the thesis show I knew that I wanted it to be like a darker space that you could come in and still feel comfortable because I was thinking about ideas of mortality um, but making that feel making an environment where that would be comfortable to think about. So now you brought up a good point too about the cushions you're working in, in so many different areas you have these little precious little objects in glass jars where you know they're all about not touching and you have a couple layers of space between the viewer and what your art is but then there's also these things where you can just go sit on them mm-hmm. you know um, so you're touching them and then you're also viewing you know these other objects which are all same body of work but I, I like the furniture element is that something that came about while you were making the art you're just well might as well I got nothing. I got no chairs to sit on, so I might as well make one for myself. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, I just that's a good point. That there's like some works that have a distance. Like I call these specimens. So yeah, they're they're contained in these jars, and you don't really touch them. And then, um, like the piece behind you is all butterflies pinned individually to a board, and that piece can be touched. And the cushions can be sat in, and you kind of sink into them, and you can turn them in all different directions. So there's all different degrees of distance and separation of interaction. But yeah, I wanted. I wanted every element of the exhibition to be intentional, so I wanted to either find seating that would be a good fit for that or craft it to be uh, meaningful. So the cushions themselves were 
cubes where each opposite side of the cube was uh, kind of an inverse of the other. So that was another element of like the kaleidoscope idea of being able to turn them on any side. Um, but then, you know, they start as this rigid cube, this like solid looking thing, but then you sink into them and they become more spherical. So I liked that part of it as well. And you, you had a captive audience because you didn't want to get out of the seat. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it was memorable because it was a space, a lot of exhibitions, not just thesis shows, but exhibitions in general. You walk around, you get the gist of it, and you're like, eh, okay, I took that in, and, now you, and then you leave. In yours, it was like a space where you just wanted to go and chill out. You were also doing an interactive where you were crocheting on an overhead projector, which was being projected on the wall so were you surprised at the amount of people that were in there and they that just stayed i mean it was pretty crowded when i went in there it was which was i, I thought was was super cool thank you yeah yeah it was what i was hoping for but i wasn't sure how much people would want to stay and really connect with it because like as we know people spend a few seconds in front of a work of art sometimes and then just move on um so I was glad that I, the performance um, was a decision that came a little bit later in the process. So I'm, I'm glad that I included it um, because I had the videos playing on like a digital projector and then I had this analog one. So that kind of came back to the idea of time as well. Um, and it connected people with what the physical process of crochet actually is and like putting into perspective the fact that there are like thousands of stitches that were in the show so they could watch one being made at a time and then at the end of that performance I would unravel whatever I had made for that 30 minutes so it became also about the idea of not worrying so much about trying to make something that lasts forever because it's impossible but engaging with art anyway um, I think is really meaningful how long did it take how long does it take to make one of the butterflies they take about 11 minutes. Okay. Yeah. How many seconds? 11 minutes and... I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty on the dot with 11 minutes. That, yeah. That's a weird thing about the crochet, too, is once you get a rhythm. like And with this painting, which is also connected to crochet, these are 72 uh, crochet diagrams, and I spent 30 minutes intentionally on each one. And at first, I was timing that. But then I found that I didn't even have to run a timer anymore. It mm -hmm. just became a rhythm and a meditation. Right. So speaking of your practice, how does that work now? What does what your practice look like? Do you spend five days a week in the studio, four hours a day? Do you have a routine? Is it just based on the projects that you're working on now? It definitely varies depending on the on the project. So I have a few different places that I work depending on what I'm working on. So in here, I'll do a lot of painting um, just for the lighting and the and the 24-hour access is really great. And then at home, I often settle in and do a lot of my crochet because my yarn stash is there and that takes up a lot of space in and of itself. And there I can get kind of comfortable and just work all day. I'm also doing a lot of weaving at home right now. Someone has very generously let me borrow her floor loom. It's one of those four shaft looms with the foot pedals. Um, so I'm working on some tapestries at home. And Have then, you done that work yeah. before? Just a little bit. This is definitely the biggest project, weaving project that I've mm -hmm. attempted. So it's exciting yeah. for you right now. Yeah. yeah. Cool. What are you working on, on on the loom? So I'm doing, I'm weaving them all at once on the same uh, warp, which is, is the thread that's stretched um, and set up into the loom. Three tapestries that are each about the size of a doorway. 
and I'm working with two colors of yarn. One is sort of a light green that's reminiscent of like the glow-in-the-dark color, mm -hmm. um, and then a white yarn that in the dark will will glow in the dark. And so with weaving being about like going over and under in the way that the pattern is formed, I'm going to have light behind those three doorway tapestry panels that you know you'll see one part of the pattern as green when the light is on and the other as green when the light is off because it's been charged up and is glowing are these going to be hung flat against a wall or is it going to be out in space i've seen some of yours too that are like shadow boxed kind of with the light behind them mm -hmm. How, what does the final piece look like in your mind with that one, I want them to be floating more out in space. I'm trying to find ways to break away from the wall a little bit. So in the early stages of working through the solution for that, but I, I have this LED rope that I work with. Um, so that might be on the wall or on the floor or reaching out a bit behind. And then, yeah, ideally the panels would be floating more in space. Are you using a deadline for an exhibition for that? Do you have anything on the calendar right now coming up? Yeah, so that's been really great to look forward to is I have a solo exhibition coming up at the Averett Center in Statesboro, Georgia in about a year, so spring 2024, um, and the dates are still yet to be announced on that, but that gives me a timeline to, to work on a few pieces that I have in mind, which feels really good. That's exciting. Yeah, How did that come about? Um, through Sulphur. Uh, so we had an artist-in-residence, uh, Kimberly Reiner, who is the director of the Averett Center. So we have stayed in touch, and uh, she she set me up with an exhibition there, which has been great. Yeah. Great. We'll hopefully talk to you before then and maybe do a little bit of a recap going into your show so we can tell people about it and get them all excited about coming up to check it out. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. yeah. Look forward to seeing what you have planned for that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm at the beginnings of a whole new body of work that, like, the working title right now is Time Machines because I've been thinking about the idea that patterns really connect us to our sense of time. You know, we can think about what came before and anticipate what's coming ahead. But then whenever there's a break in the pattern, which is more true to life, like these unexpected things will happen, um, that can sometimes be more interesting. Uh, so that's where I'm going with the next show. The piece that you have behind you, it reminds, I know that it's, or it looks like maybe embroidery patterns. It kind of reminds me of gears, which reminds me of clocks that are the inner workings of watches and clocks. I don't, is that what you're speaking to? Yeah, totally, exactly. Like, I think a lot about blueprints and mm. machines and combining, like, the softness of crochet with the mechanical nature of some of the lights or the armatures. So, mm. yeah, exactly. What is that? What is the medium of that piece behind us? Um, so that one is charcoal on mat board, but I have been getting into, like, with a painting here, um, I use the... Prussian blue pigment, which is the same pigment found in blueprints, and then I've been doing actual cyanotypes too, so exploring that idea in different ways. Cool. Yeah, the piece behind you definitely reminds me of, of blueprint, so I think you nailed that for sure. Thank you. When you're working on the designs for these circular patterns, are you working from something that you've already crocheted, or is this some new element that you've just kind of creatively come up with to draw as opposed to work out in fibers yeah so with this one I let myself get a little more free with the patterns I started out 
from the center of each piece of lace with how crochet would actually start and the way that structure would begin, but then I kind of let them diversify into whatever they were going to be and connect them, like you were saying, like gears or almost like spider webs. Yeah, I see, and Kevin was saying, inner workings of a clock, that's that's kind of what I see too, because you, you open the back case of a clock and look at the, the workings and the jewels, that's reminiscent of, of what your patterns are doing right now. What work are you doing with the cyanotypes that interests me? Yeah, so I have a series that right now I'm calling Blueprint for a Time Machine, um, where I crocheted a single piece of lace, and I'm creating cyanotypes from that single piece over and over again. And I want to have dozens, maybe even hundreds of those um, to either stitch together or show individually as prints. But it's like back to that idea of multiples. So in the same vein as the butterflies, just doing the same small action over and over again, having that accumulate to something that's more uh, impactful as an installation. So can you describe what cyanotype is for me? Yeah. um, So I've been using nature print paper, um, which comes in a light safe package. And you pull it out and you put your object on top and you expose that to sunlight. Um, And then wherever the object was sitting, that'll be white. Um, And you you soak that in water to sort of lock it in. And then it'll dry and the the blue will become like a richer, darker blue. And wherever your object was sitting will be white. Have Have you heard of Megan Rippenhoff? I have not. I got to see some of her work in New York last September. And that was my first experience of looking at um, cyanotype work. And she used, I think the show that I saw was called Ice. And I think she used ice as the medium to get the imprint of, she was imprinting the ice through cyanotype. Oh, wow. And as it melted, it kind of created this other beautiful pattern. That does. If you ever get to check out her work, it's pretty interesting. Did you do any printmaking when you were at SCAD? Has that informed your work? Yeah, I loved printmaking. Um, I did some woodblock printing, so I was doing some carvings of lace. Uh, I did some screen printing as well, and then I incorporated that into some of the light boxes. So I had screen prints on transparent material in different colors and then light behind. So the appearance of the print would shift um, with the changes of the light. So it was really, yeah, it was fun to play with that. I did some solar prints, or solar plate prints. Did you work with those at all? It sounds, Mm -hmm. it's not the same process as the cyanotype, because it's more like um, a photo plate where you expose it in the darkroom, and then you take it outside and put it in the sun, and that fixes the emulsion. Mm -hmm. Um, And that came out, um, I did some photographs that way that, that worked pretty well, too, so... Oh, very cool. Fun to play with. Yeah, I love that about print, that you're working with dark and light. It definitely goes back to a lot of this as well. Yeah. Yeah. How did you move, or did you move, from painting to fibers? Had that always been a part of your your creative process? Yeah, so I came in, I started crocheting a little bit during undergrad, but I didn't think of it so much, so central to my practice as I do now. Um, I came to SCAD for painting, um, and I'm really glad I did. I love the painting department. The people there are awesome. But I took a fibers elective pretty early on, I think my second quarter, and that just sort of blew everything wide open. And from there, I was I was definitely hooked on fibers. 
so yeah, now I, I don't think of myself so much as just one or the other, like a, a painter or fiber artist, just more of a multimedia conceptual artist. It's nice to have those skills to crocheting and weaving. I mean, that takes time to learn how to do that, especially if you're doing a butterfly in, you know, 11 minutes or 30 seconds or whatever. <laughs> if you have to do 300 of them, I mean, that takes, that, that definitely takes a certain skill. Where's your journey taken you from? I know it's not been that long since, since you have graduated. Because we like to try to disseminate a little bit of information to help creative people that are looking to make you know a living or supplement income with their art how's that process what has your your short journey been Mm -hmm. and what that you've learned you know even while you were in school can you impart to our wide listening audience yeah so i think being in school and now being out during that whole time, one of the most important things was to, to just keep showing up and not letting my work stagnate at all. And even when that means having days where it doesn't feel so productive because I'm just going in and I'm staring at the work and I'm frustrated and like pondering, that I think is all still part of it. So I guess not beating yourself up for those days because they're part of the process too. Um, and knowing that rest is okay, but that stagnation is kind of a, a different thing. So as long as you're showing up for what you love to do every day, I think that's the most important thing. And it also helps you meet people who care about it too. And your space is inside Sulphur Studios. Yes. I know that's probably been a great springboard for you as well. You got a residency here, correct? Um, I started with an internship actually. Um, And then that has evolved into a more permanent position. So I'm a gallery assistant and director of public relations here. Um, And so I help with our exhibitions, um, like promotion, install, deinstall, coordinating things with artists and doing artist talks and sort of all the inner workings of that. Um, And it's been really fantastic. I've met so many wonderful people. I love the team here, Um, love everyone that has studios here and definitely planning on sticking around in Savannah, not not leaving anytime soon, so. So those relationships that you've kind of nurtured and built, how, how important have those been and do you see them being as you move forward in your career? Like absolutely vital. Um, and it's been part of like showing up for what you want, love to do and seeing those people every day and getting to work with them and keep that alive has been super important and like continuing to seek out opportunities to talk about your work and to receive critiques and to like take in feedback and process it and I mean it's just been super important. It's similar to the system at Alexander Hall the painting department at SCAD where you bump into people and get feedback and I'm sure that's similar I'm assuming that it's similar. Yeah, and I I absolutely loved that about the painting department, too. Like, Alexander Hall is, like, a really special place, and the Mm -hmm. professors are all so invested in what they do. And, yeah, I feel very lucky to have gone there. And here, your studio, the next-door studio, looks like it has a rock band set up in there, right? There's instruments and all that. Do you take a break and go, you know, smack the drums for a little while? or? (laughs) Yeah, what's so, going on over there? Yeah, there are a few different people around who uh, who use sulfur for offices for different reasons. Um, so that guy, I think, he does his desk job out of the out of the studio, and then has the guitar there for for unwinding. I guess. Do you have to bang on the door or on the wall? You know, 
I'm working on my I, my uh, crochet. I can't deal with this bass bass line. You know, I've never actually heard him play in there, but I do hear sounds from the wormhole next door. Um, I've gone over for a couple of shows there. Uh, there was a great band from Athens called Nicholas Malice, who I discovered over there. They're like one of my favorite bands now. Um, they actually have a show coming up at El Rocco on like March 4th, so a little plug for them, I guess. But What, what kind of music is it? Um, kind of like alternative, kind of little techno, little rock sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. That's a good segue into your next question. <laughs> I have no idea what you're asking. No, what's what kind of music do you listen to when you work, or do you listen to anything when you're working? Yeah, so I've been, like, I did a lot of reading for research while I was in grad school, and a lot of listening to audiobooks for research, and I've been trying to do even more of that and some reading for pleasure this year um, has been a goal. So, like, at home, I'll just physically read. But here, I'll switch over to the audiobook version of whatever I'm reading. Um, so right now, I'm finishing up Where the Crawdads Sing. Um, I wanted to read it's that a great before book. watching the movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. The book, way better than the movie. Really? Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but the book, yeah. the book. I, I did that on audio as well. So. Yeah. It was very well narrated, I thought. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, she does a beautiful job. Um, yeah, so I listened to that. Uh been listening to some Stephen King <laughs> novels. Um, Joan Didion. Uh, I just finished South and West. That was really good. When you listen to music, what is it? Um, so yeah, like legitimately, I've been getting really into Nicholas Malice. Um, I like that band. I like The Strokes, um, Wallows, Talking Heads. So I, I have some more questions about your work. Were in your your studio and on the print or on all the walls there's this grid system of of wood paneling or wood wood planks it looks like it's laser cut yeah 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 so i was gonna build it was crazy i was gonna try to build those by hand with like it was maybe a month out from the show and thankfully um Diego Cardenas, who you guys talked to, was like, you should just get them laser cut. The um, Clark Hall at SCAD, they're fantastic over there. And like he helped me lay it out in Illustrator so that I could um, then slot these together um, and sand them and stain them and, and get them to be precise. Because I think that was an important part of it, is having them look uniform like that. What kind of wood is that? Um, is it like plywood? Yeah, I think it's pine. Pine, pine. like sheets of pine. Okay. Yeah. And you're, are you going to crochet? So in some of these cubes that you have, or the grid system, you have crocheted items that aren't butterflies. Have you made more of those and created a system? And like a, it reminds me of like Home Depot with the, the paint chips and the oh, whole yeah. wall. I can envision you doing these crochet things and. You know, you follow what I'm saying, like the yeah, yeah, like it. It kind of goes back to the idea of the lab. Like I'm now using the shelves to sort of categorize things a little bit. So those are. I had to take a break from them because it was actually messing up my wrists to do them. They, it's like hyperbolic crochet, Mm. where you double the number of stitches in every round as you go. Okay. Um. So each one of those is about six hours, and it's so addictive that I didn't want to stop. So I had to take a break for my wrist's sake. But uh, those I was thinking about, because they sort of look like biological. They kind of look like They're very organic. So I was thinking about them as, like, 
compartmentalizing, like taking this or organic thing and putting it into these regimented squares and what that means. Um, so that's a newer piece. And they're interesting in an, another way where you've kind of varied the shade of the colors just slightly, mm -hmm. and that, that gives them a whole an, another kind of layer of depth. How does color decision-making play into your, into your crochet? Mm -hmm. um, so with those ones, I don't want to deviate too far from that range of like neutral sort of pinks, like thinking about the biological thing. Um, with the butterflies, I wanted to have as much variety as possible to have different combinations. So I was working through my entire yarn stash and finding as many combinations as I could. But then if you go into the naming system, like I have a whole taxonomy chart where each of the colors sort of relates to the meaning behind the name of each butterfly. Um, so. What are some of the names? Let me pull one off the shelf, see which one I get. Let's see, this is a Filumi Floralis Spuma. Um, so I believe Filumi was thread. I like looked into some of the Latin to try to piece these together uh, from like fiction but and then floralis floralis is floral um, and spuma is like foam In so Spanish. think about ephemerality yeah. yeah do you do that every every couple of days you just grab one and look at it go, wow <laughs> try to translate them get your get the brain fog yeah trying to remember what my you know like my system was at a point where I was like really locked in and labeling each one of these I could look at it and I could be like oh that's a and just like say it like it was a scientific fact like oh that's what that butterfly is but now you have to think about it a little bit how did you organize them again if we can jump back to that yeah. you said you had a, a system that you categorized them yeah, so I used like binomial nomenclature, like the Linnaean system. So each one of these butterflies has a genus and a species, and it's all based on the colors. Um, so the naming system was one of the final steps of the whole thing. The first step was really just to decide what colors I was using and then work through every iteration of, okay, for this color, every center has to be made, and then I have to have a different color on the outside. And so there was like a very systematic thing there. Um, and I love that kind of process of like repetition, so and like tedious things like that. I really enjoy. So it's kind of meditative. It yeah. seems like it would be. I don't. I've never crocheted. My uh, my stepmother always has her bag with her and her needles, and she's always crocheting. She makes we all my kids have blankets, and she she does a lot of that. But it, for her, I think it's very meditative. Yeah, exactly. It's very. It's very relaxing and and addictive like i said like i could i could do it for hours and still not want to stop and my great-grandmother was the same way and she she was to a point where she could just she'd not even look at it and just you know be watching her programs and, and crocheting can you do it without looking i basically can now um if it's a pattern that i already know i can kind of feel it without without looking down i do that with painting too but people can tell like i didn't even open your eyes for that one. <laughs> Start that one over again. <laughs> oh, wow. So the painting to the behind you, we spoke about it also previously. Yeah. Um, there's 70-something different patterns. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, 72. And it's all the, it's the same uh, crochet chart. Um, but I liked the evenness of that, where this is 36 by 72 inches. And then 72 squares and with a half hour on each one that works out to be 36 hours so i kind of liked the roundness of mm -hmm. that and it was one of the first 
pieces that I made um, coming out of school. So I wanted to give myself something with a lot of structure where I could show up and, you know, put a lot of the thinking into the beginning of it, but then really just enjoy losing myself in the process as I executed that. So, yeah. You mentioned the concepts of work and rest. Mm -hmm. Does that come into this piece? Or if, if it does or doesn't, how does that affect what you're working on and, you know, how does that relate to what you do on the day to day? Yeah, I think I like the idea of there being not so much of a distinction between art and life. I, I like, I believe in that philosophy. So in a way it's work, but it's also like, for me, there's nothing unless I'm like really struggling with the piece and trying to figure out what it is and what it means like that, that's some of the labor, but getting lost in the process is its own sort of restful um, thing. But this, this definitely relates back to blueprints, which relates back to building and work and, um, and the element of time, like looking at something like this and looking at something like crochet, for me, it relates back to time conceptually um, with the idea that uh, like repeating those same small motions connects me back to people in the past who have done that before. But then just physically looking at it, people still get the idea of time right away because it's like, oh, how long did it take to do that is one of the first questions that I get. So people still connect to it that way too. So another kind of thread in time, this tradition goes way back. I'm, you know, I'm not that much of a historian on fibers, do you look at what's come before you to get ideas about kind of pushing the boundaries of um, what's possible with fiber? Yeah, so like with crochet, for example, it started in the 19th century. And so a lot of my source material ends up coming from that time. A lot of my reading and research, like I had a painting that was four different uh, blanket patterns. One of them was a crochet pattern and the others were quilts. Um, and it was based on the life of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, so I was looking at how those patterns uh, visually intersected and how the stories within that painting intersected. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of that looking back and looking forward. Well, thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk to us about your work. It's, it's great to sit in your studio and look around at all the different aspects of what you're doing, the different avenues that you're taking. And we look forward to, to talking to you again before your show. Um, are there any other uh, venues that you will be attending or anything that you're doing in the, in the interim that you can plug? Or? Sure. Um, well, yeah, if, you, if you'd like to see me in person, uh, my studio, like we've said, is here at Sulphur. And I'm always around for First Fridays. Um, we've got a show coming up March 1st Friday. Uh, it's the Nomadic Photo Arc. So... Um, they were here as artists in residence a few months ago, and they've come back with their mobile darkroom, and there's going to be hundreds of photos in the gallery, um, and the artists will basically be here uh, kind of in residence to talk with people and continue to collect stories and take photos. So I'll be around for that and love to see people there. Awesome. Thank you, Samantha. It's nice to talk with you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to have anybody interviewed or if you have any questions or comments, please hit us up on Instagram at the 10 frame. <laughs>